Hi, I'm Jeff Miller. I'm Anthony Navarro, and welcome to Talk Out Loud, where we share the LGBTQIA narrative one story at a time. On this episode of Talk Out Loud, we're here with Stan J.R. Zerkowski. JR is the director of LGBTQ Plus Ministry for the Diocese of Lexington, Kentucky, and the executive director of Fortunate Families. He travels speaking about LGBTQ Plus intentional welcome and ministry within the Catholic Church. At a young age, he was inspired by the Franciscans to help rebuild the church and went to work in music ministry. Over the years, he grew in confidence and was able to come out as a gay man while being part of a groundbreaking movement, catering to those patients marginalized with HIV and AIDS through the church. From that tremendous learning experience, he has continued to help the church bring dignity to those in peril. JR reminds us that by answering the tug at our hearts to love others, we are in turn loving God. Let's hear JR's story. We are so excited to be here with JR from Lexington, Kentucky. The Derby is normally coming up in May in the spring, right? The Derby usually comes up in May. However, it was in October this year because of the pandemic. And uh, we are known for thoroughbred racing, of course, and our thoroughbreds. We are also known for bluegrass and don't forget bourbon. Ah, yeah, Kentucky bourbon. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) We have the bourbon trail here, and it's through what we call the Holy Land of Kentucky. So, uh, so bourbon and holiness go together, and I'm very happy ministering here. In, in sounds like a good sounds like a good Sunday. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. So, Jr., you grew up in Buffalo, New York, right? I did. I grew up uh, in Buffalo, New York, in what I would call a Polish ghetto, so to speak. There were different neighborhoods, like much like probably New York City and other places. In the neighborhood I grew up in was uh, mainly Polish people, probably first generation Poles. And uh, everybody knew everybody, all the neighbors knew one another. And so you had uh, a lot of parents, including the people that lived downstairs and the people that lived up and down almost every block. Now, just to give a little background, was that community, uh, as far as the faith practice? The Polish community are deeply rooted in, in faith and in the practice of their faith. Uh, the faith sort of permeated every bit of our lives, um, from our Christmas celebrations to Easter celebrations to blessing doorways, which we just did here in, in Kentucky just a couple of a couple of days ago on the Feast of the Epiphany. The, the faith really was central to life because, don't forget, the people that came here, the first generation, were, were emulating those that came here from Poland. And those people that came here from Poland, like my grandparents and great-grandparents, they were under oppression. And so the faith sustained them during those years of oppression. And so therefore, it permeated every bit of living. And that was translated to life here in the United States. And so we were the beneficiaries of that deep, deep and abiding faith that permeated every bit of life. Yeah. So that was instilled in you at a young age, it sounds like, then as well passed on. Oh, it sure was. I mean, yeah, it was just expected, I think, of, of first of all, Catholics in Buffalo in general, and second of all, of Polish uh, American Catholics, uh, that you would serve Mass, that you would go to a Catholic school. I went to Catholic grade school and Catholic high school, and you know, it sort of was a theme in my life, and still is, obviously. I'm still working and ministering for and in the church. Yeah. Yeah, JR, I mean, I definitely... I can connect with, you know, what you're saying and sort of that experience growing up in an Italian family and a predominantly Italian neighborhood, you know, church was, uh, 
uh, a really big part of our lives. Same sort of thing, you know, definitely went to Catholic grade school, high school, and even college. So it was a really big part of my growing up. I'm curious in terms of what that looked like for you as you were coming up, what was it like being within that community and starting to come to terms with who you are and your sexuality? Sure. Well, I I don't know that I knew much about my sexuality when I was very, very young. I don't think I gave it a second thought. I mean, I just enjoyed being a Polish-American young boy. I enjoyed everything everything about it. I enjoyed the uh, the things that we did that were faith-centered. I enjoyed the things that we did that were culturally centered. And it was just interwoven. There were the faith and life and culture and everything were, were, were interwoven. It wasn't until uh, I probably was, uh, probably in high school, I'd say, where I started figuring out exactly who I was. And that became a bit of, a, became a bit of an issue because you must remember, I, when I was in high school, it was in the 70s. And in the 70s, we weren't talking about these topics. Right. And so there was no one really to have this kind of a conversation with about, well, gee whiz, maybe I think I'm gay, mm-hmm. uh, let alone the church, because the church uh, barely said the word pregnant, let alone <laughs> gay. I mean, we weren't going to, we weren't going to go there. <laughs> you know, somebody was expecting, you wouldn't, you wouldn't say that they were pregnant. So there was not a lot of, uh, a lot of room, wiggle room, I'd say, for even approaching anyone in the church. Now, mind you, I was working for the church because during high school, I took a job as a, as an organist in a in a parish in the Kaisertown uh, section of Buffalo, and I was 13 years old when I began playing in churches. Um, so my Saturdays and Sundays were pretty filled with religion, and sometimes weeknights too, between a choir rehearsal or we would have May devotions and June devotions uh, to the Blessed Mother, to the Sacred Heart. Uh, so my life sort of revolved around school, around home, around friends. I played, I played uh, baseball. I played hockey and church. So uh, there was no place really to have the conversation about what I'm thinking. I I am discovering about myself. It would, I wouldn't do it with my family. I wouldn't do it with the church. I was sort of navigating those waters all alone because there was no op- no opportunity. To have yeah. Those conversations. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people can relate to that. Just in terms of th- those who are immersed in their church experience, I'm curious. Did you ever feel was there like any kind of sadness that you had that you weren't able to like fully connect with the church and the community on a like in being like honest about who you are? I don't think that during my high school years or my grade school years I ever did. To be honest with you, hmm. I I was sort of. Oh, how do I want to say this? I was I was just sort of immersed in my high school experience. I was immersed in, in, in every part of it that that I wanted to be immersed in, and I had good friends, and they just knew me, and um, they liked me. I mean, I, yeah. I had friends that were jocks. I had friends that were nerds. I had friends that were artsy. I had friends that were uh, none of the above, and we just all sort of liked each other. I can't remember anybody being... Uh, mean to me or saying anything pejorative about uh, you know a, a gay slur or anything, and I went to Catholic high school. Um, I think the thing was it just wasn't talked about, so therefore uh, there was no way to delve into that kind of a, a a conversation about self, which I would have loved to have done, whether it was with teachers or with friends. But you just didn't 
He didn't say yeah. those things. But I never felt sad. I mm-hmm. think I felt accepted. I think the older I, I got, I, I realized that it was really a shame that these topics were never brought up mm-hmm. because I could have benefited from having conversations with people that I admired, people that I worked with, people that I looked up to as faith leaders and teachers and so forth. But it just wasn't uh, the time for those kind of conversations, I guess. So, JR, there's kind of like that fun period of time, like, you know, in those tween years where, you know, you're not really having to worry about the cares of the world. But then, you know, I think for myself, I can think of like, you know, maybe sophomore year, I started realizing, okay, like the people that were eager to older me, like started having to make decisions about like, where am I going to go to school? What's life look? Almost like the, the natural conveyor belt of life was starting to approach for the next thing. Did, did you have friends like, you know, starting to make decisions about school or calling? And then how did you, did, you know, were you able to relate or was yours different? Well, no, I, th- I think that about sophomore, junior year, people started, you know, thinking about well, what, what are we going to do afterwards? Where are we going to go to school? You know, what do you want to study? What do you want to be? I remember now, probably, uh, I, I imagine then as well as now, you know, by the time you're maybe a junior in high school and maybe a senior, you might already have sort of a, you know, a significant other at this point, but at that time you probably had a girlfriend or a boyfriend and it was heterosexual. And so I too had to think about what I wanted to do. And I knew I was attracted, you know, I was attracted to the Franciscan friars. I don't yeah. even know what they are, but they're, they're, a, they're an order within the church and they follow St. Francis of Assisi. And there was a group that came around and they were called the singing friars. They were a bunch of young guys in formation to be friars and they played different instruments and so forth. And they would do these uh, singing and music gigs all around the place. And I remember my mother took me to see them at Villa Maria College Auditorium. And I really was attracted to what they were doing. They were a bunch of young guys following St. Francis, who I really always thought pretty highly of because I thought he was a radical and uh, really called the church and called the world to conversion, meaning conversion to to love to reform to to be better to rebuild and uh, these guys were sort of attractive and so what does a gay young polish boy do that's catholic you think about joining a religious order so that way you don't have to deal with any of these issues because you will take a vow of, of chastity or if you weren't joining an order you would promise celibacy and you just wouldn't have to deal with why don't you have a girlfriend or anything else now that's that wasn't the excuse that wasn't the reason that i went in but that was a mighty convenient uh, add-on to why i went in because then there'd be no questions asked no expectations right Yeah. yeah and you're doing something noble besides and the nobility of it really attracted me and i thought well it's a win-win yeah saint francis for anyone who's listening he wrote the, the prayer of St. Francis, correct? Well, we don't know if he actually wrote that. It, seems, uh, it probably was attributed more to his life than him actually writing it. But he lived in the 1200s, and uh, he, was, he was rich, and he wanted to be a knight. He came from a very affluent family, and he gave up everything to sort of identify with the poor and with those that were on the peripheries and those that were on the outside. And he called the church to reform. And he, and he had sort of a come to Jesus moment where he went to this little church and, and he heard this crucifix speak to him that said, go Francis, rebuild my church. And he started putting stone after stone, but that's not really what he was called to do. He was called to rebuild it more in the image of the inclusive God, Jesus. It sounds like that there was definitely an identification with the uh, the actions of, of St. Francis that, that it would call to you as well too, right? 
absolutely from an early, from a very early age and i think that was instilled in me again now let's go back to what i said in the beginning about about the polish american culture you know uh i called it a, a polish american ghetto and i did that purposefully i think we all looked out for one another people cared for one another there was a, a giving of self and a sharing people shared whatever they had uh and so that sort of you know dovetails really well with this this franciscan spirit of rebuilding and restoring and restoring the dignity of others mm -hmm. and sharing what one has you know poverty doesn't necessarily mean you have nothing it means that you ascribe nothing to yourself because it's all gift and perhaps we should be all ascribing to poverty where we share whatever we have with others and that that was really uh, attractive to me yeah so where did that so you know, you, you finished high school and did you, did you follow the, the singing friars or, or where did you go next? <laughs> I, I did. After high school, I, uh, I, I left, uh, I graduated in June and in August of that year, uh, I was 17 years old and I joined the, uh, conventional Franciscan friars and I made my novitiate in Ellicott city, Maryland, which was a year and a day of seclusion. And we had 24, uh, young men in in my group and what we did we prayed and we worked and we stayed on that property for a year and a day trying to figure out you know what what god was saying to us were we called to this way of life or were we not so a year and a day that's that's a lot but at the same time um i've done sometimes where i've done maybe like a 21 day meditation practice i was still talking to other people or maybe gone away for a retreat and and i honestly that's one thing in COVID that I haven't done that I've been missing is that this last year, I haven't done what I normally one of the two or the retreats I would do. What, what did you walk away from, from that experience? What was that like? Well, you know, it, it really taught me something about introspection. Now, you know, when you're, when you're there for a year and a day and you're praying and you're working, and you're not leaving and you're with 24 other guys, some of whom are straight, some of whom are not straight. Uh, every And we were all young. So we were all sort of figuring ourselves out, figuring ourselves out in relation to faith, particularly in a relation to the Franciscan charism, you know, following St. Francis, and seeing what we want to do with the rest of our of our lives, if this is something we wanted to commit ourselves to. So I think what I walked away from that was the capacity to look at myself and to try to understand myself, to try to dig as deep as I could to figure out what motivates me, to figure out what drives me, to figure out who I am, so that way I could perhaps do some good for the church, for the world. But first I had to know who I was. And I think that's sort of the purpose of that year, to figure out who you are before God and to figure out what the community is for you and who you are to the community. But I think for me it went even deeper because I think I used that time to figure out who I was in relation to the world, not just the mm -hmm. Franciscan friars, but in relation to in relation to others. Wow, that is such a gift to be able to do that, you know, before you sort of jump into your, you know, life and your career. I think, you know, so many times, you know, we're sort of on this path, you know, it's like you're in high school, you're getting ready for college, you just jump right into college, you're making decisions for your career. And to be able to have that time to really reflect and think about and get to know yourself and hear you know, what direction you should be going in, it, that just seems like 
like everybody should do that. <laughs> there should yeah. be a little bit of a break before you just sort of jump in to what you're doing. Because self-discovery, it's something you know we don't talk about as much, I guess, just in general. And being able to sort of let go of society's expectations and to really get to know who you are and you know be able to sort of take the next step in your life. Yeah, you know that was it was a real gift. At the same time, it was a real challenge because as I am figuring out who I am, and I'm now mind you, I was 17 years old. I turned 18 in, in November of that year. I was coming to terms with who I was and my sexuality as well. Mm. And so, as a gay young man within a religious order, I had no one to speak to about this mm. because these topics weren't spoken about. So. It was a unique disadvantage to self-discovery and to mm. self-actualization because I had to figure this out pretty much on my own for that year and a day, except for one uh, elderly friar uh, that I spoke with and was pretty honest with, and he just simply advised me, <laughs> don't talk about this. Don't oh, talk about mm, it to anybody. Mm, mm. Uh, so, so I knew it was sort of taboo at that point. But by the same token, I think I was given the 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 time and the luxury, and, and I use that word on purpose again, I was given the luxury of being able to have quiet and have specific time that was dedicated to figuring out who I was. Mm. So despite all of the challenges, despite you know the less than fertile ground for a young gay man to be figuring himself out, let alone figuring out himself in relation to the faith, uh, I was able to at least begin touching upon that for myself because I was forced into that situation. So after coming out of that situation, what did you decide to go next? When I left the Friars, um, I had a pastor, a wonderful pastor, Jim was his name. And, uh, you know, I thought, well, I, I don't think I want to pursue this any longer because there was too much for me to discover about myself and about the world. So I left the Franciscans and I got a job in a church playing the organ again, being the music director. And my pastor thought that I, I really needed to go back to a seminary. And so, you know, he, he did all kinds of things and convinced me to go back into a seminary, which I did. And again, it, was, it, it wasn't really a don't ask, don't tell kind of a place. It was more just don't talk about it kind of a place. Mm -hmm. And so I found myself once again in a place where I knew darn full well that some of the guys if not many of the guys in there were gay men. Uh, but again, nobody's talking about it, and nobody's helping us understand ourselves. Nobody's helping us to move forward, unless you were doing it one-on-one -on -one in spiritual direction, but there were never like group uh, support chats or conversations that would happen in class or, or in, in larger forms where we could hear one another's experience and maybe learn how to responsibly be gay priests or gay men or anything else. Um, so I, I did the best I could, and I stayed as long as I could, and then I left. And then I got a job again as a music director in, in Buffalo. And I, had a, I was at a Polish parish, and an interesting thing was I had a very, very conservative Monsignor that was my boss at that point, and he was known as sort of no-nonsense. He was a heterosexual man, no doubt about that. And we worked together for a couple of years. And I think there was no doubt in his mind that I was a gay young man. But just as a side note, I kept in touch with him for all the years after I left 
uh, that parish. And don't you know, he called me up one day, not too many years ago, and he asked me if, uh, if I would deliver the eulogy at his funeral. Wow. And that was because of our relationship, I think, for all of those years, a relationship of honesty. We, you could not have had two more different men uh, put together and said, go work for the church and make, make the parish work, and then remain friends for decades. It really shocked me when he called me, and it was an honor to do that, because oftentimes at a priest's funeral, the person that is going to deliver the eulogy or the, the address or whatever you want to call it in secular terms is another priest. And I think he floored everybody when I marched up there to give the talk at his funeral. And I think that really spoke volumes about the possibilities in the church, the possibilities of two very, very different men coming from two very, very different experiences. I don't think anybody would label me conservative, not that I deserve a label, nor does he, but if you had to assign one, I would say that he was a very, very conservative Polish Monsignor, and here I was, anything but that, and there was a mutuality and a care, and dare I say, we loved one another, and and he knew that there was one person that would do him justice in the end to speak about him. And and I think that just speaks volumes to the possibilities in life. Mm. Yeah, even, I, when we, even when we think someone is very different than ourselves, and perhaps we're fearful to enter into that, into that even cautious rapport. If we enter into it, and if we, you know, just just immerse ourselves in the moment and do it with authenticity and integrity, look what can happen. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's showing people who you really are and being able to connect on not who you are, but on, you know, your commonalities. And I think so often, you know, we we say this on the show here is that, you know, we're really not all that different from one another when we really sit down and we get to know one another. So I think it's just a, a beautiful testament to, you know, yourself as a person and how you're connecting with other people you know, in the church and in the world. Yeah, you know, I, I have a, I want to say a friend of mine, a Father Jim Martin, he's the one that wrote the book, Building a Bridge, about uh, LGBT Catholics and so forth. And he always says, there's no us in them. Mm-hmm. There's only us. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's true. And I think if we navigate the world that way, we yeah. really can impact it yeah. in, in incredibly powerful ways. When we start to other people or them, that's so distant from ourselves, and it doesn't allow like my heart, our hearts to touch. I would almost say, you know. Well, it puts up a wall immediately because yeah. there's there, and again, you know, I, of course, I'm going to be a person that's going to be talking about you know church people and quoting them, but like the like the Pope just said the other day, you know, you can't claim to be a Christian and be one who builds walls. That's pretty powerful. Yeah. Yeah. So building the bridge is is the important thing. And I think that story about the Monsignor and myself through the years, and even in the beginning, there was a bridge built and it was a sturdy bridge. And that bridge spanned to eternity. That's that's just beautiful to me. It's a, it was a gift to my life. Yeah. That's a really important story. Uh, I can think of other people like that in my life where it would have been, people would have thought like, oh, these two would, would never be friends. And I've had some really, I've had fast friendships and sometimes they've taken longer than others to develop where it's just been like, a chance meeting. And honestly, I, I think I cherish those relationships because I have a lot of like-minded people that I surround myself with. And it's those unexpected friendships that have come into my life that have been 
is special in a different way, if that makes any sense at all. It, it sure does. And, I, and every, every time in my own life that I, that I look back at significant defining moments, I see that exact same dynamic happening, whether it was there in Buffalo or it was in Florida or it was here in Kentucky or no matter where it happens to be, it's the exact same dynamic. I think that's why we say that our God is a God of surprises because we are always shocked where grace abounds. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that just makes me smile. That's beautiful. We we know that you're in Lexington, but you just mentioned uh, South Florida. What brought you down to South Florida? And what time? Like around what was this? The 80s? What time period was this? <laughs> yeah, this was this was 1985 when I left Buffalo to go to Florida. Now, remember the Monsignor that I just talked about in this parish? So I sort of did him a little dirty. Um, <laughs> I was very happy there. He was very nice to me. And one day I sashayed into his sacristy and told him that I was leaving and I was going to Florida for a job. He was incensed, um, pun intended. He was incensed. Um, he, uh, he was livid, actually, that I, that I just decided to do that. And let me tell you how that happened. There was a parishioner of his, Helen Radomsky was her name, very, very nice lady, wonderful woman. And both of her brothers, two of her brothers, were priests, Father Innocent and her other brother, Father Mark Christopher. They both were conventional Franciscans, so they were in the order that I was in in my earlier years. Well, when her when Helen's husband died, the funeral was at the church where I was the music director and Monsignor was the pastor. Well, both of Helen's brothers show up, uh, Father Innocent and Father Mark Christopher, and Father Mark Christopher hears me playing and doing my thing, and afterwards he gets to me and he says, you know what, have you ever thought about coming to Florida? Because I got a parish in Florida, and it's beautiful, and it's near the ocean, and, and you know, he just, he was a salesman, I mean, a good salesman for the, for that church. So he said, well, I'll tell you what, why don't I fly you down, you just take a look, and, uh, you know, if it, if it works, it works, if it doesn't, you've got a free vacation, so how's that? I said, oh, cool, let's do it. So I went over there, and I, th- and I this was in Fort Pierce, Florida, and I think he drove me to Fort Pierce. Uh, via Boca Raton, because everything that I saw was gorgeous. And uh, I sort of fell in love with the place. And it didn't take me long to decide that that was a better option than Buffalo for a guy in his mid-20s. And so I walked in there, I told the Monsignor I was leaving, and then, you know, adding insult to injury, I told him that I was going to Father, we called him Father Chris, his name is Mark Christopher, Father Chris was what he went by. And I said, I'm going to Father Chris's place. And, oh my God, that should have been the end of our relationship and it, but it wasn't so it was meant to be but that's how i ended up in florida and i went uh, and i went to work with this guy and he was a franciscan but he had left the franciscans just like i did and he became a diocesan priest and he was in at a parish in fort pierce florida and so i went there and took a job as director of music and liturgy and i spent 15 years there and it was wonderful so i'm thinking like south florida right now in the 80s the HIV pandemic was was rampant at that moment, at those years, right? I mean, just in the stigma was at its height. Was the church involved at, at all? The parish that I worked in, which was in Fort Pierce, Florida, was in the Diocese of Palm Beach. Have you ever heard the saying, but they say everybody in Palm, Palm Beach reminds people of the gay the gay 90s because everybody there is either gay or 90. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and there were, there was an awful lot of uh, people in the, in the gay you know, in the gay community that were very, very sick and very, very fearful and dying. And the church really was doing nothing, nothing. Mm. I don't think the church was even talking about it, at least to my knowledge. And I could be wrong, but I lived it. I don't think that I'm, that I'm you know, saying something that's not, not true. They didn't want to touch it. Uh, my pastor, Father Chris, he had polio when he was a, when he was a baby. 
And so he walked with a, a terrible limp, and he had to get a special dispensation even to be ordained because he couldn't genuflect on his right knee. And that was something that was an impediment to ordination, so he had to get a special dispensation, the Vatican, to be able to even be ordained. So he, I tell you this because he keenly understood what it was like to be on the margins, what yeah. it was like to be at a disadvantage, someone that would be looked at oddly because even when he walked down the aisle, he was, you know, sort of hobbling down all with his vestments and all. And it was, you know, by one shoe that was bigger than the other because one foot was significantly smaller. So this was a man that understood um, mm. what, what people might feel like to be ostracized and on the outside. And Father Chris, he was willing to have conversations about what was happening because a large part of the people in Fort Pierce, or a good part of the people in Fort Pierce, were Haitian. And within the Haitian community, HIV and AIDS was incredibly devastating. And that was within the heterosexual community. We we're talking about you know women and babies and all, all kinds of awful things. So, you know, we approached this topic and Father Chris would always pray for those who are sick and elderly and handicapped, for those in prison, for those who are alone, and for the many people suffering from AIDS, which was just incredible to hear at Mass, and he would mm -hmm. say that at every single Mass. Well, we had a high school and a grade school there, and we had hundreds of kids and hundreds of kids in both schools, very large schools. One of our parishioners who had gone through our high school was Kimberly Bergalis. I don't know if that name rings a bell or not, but Kim was the first person to be infected with HIV and subsequently die of AIDS at the hand of her dentist, a healthcare worker. Oh, yeah. Mm, yeah. So Kim had graduated from our, our high school. So the idea of addressing the incredible challenge of the people living with and dying with HIV AIDS hit us as a parish uniquely and squarely between the eyes. So we had a choice, I think, fundamentally of either just turning our back and dealing with Kim and the situation very, very quietly, or taking a stand. Now, this is where Father Chris really comes into play, because Father Chris was not a man that was going to just go down very, very quietly. <laughs> he was a guy that was going to take a stand, because he understood what it was like to be at that disadvantage, to be that person that everybody looked at and pointed fingers. Now, mind you, they were saying, meaning they, the news and kinds of people were saying, there was no way in the world that Kim contracted a, uh, HIV at the hands of her healthcare worker, you know, she must have been messing around and being sexually promiscuous and all this jazz. And she had not been, and they subsequently, you know, proved that through all kinds of indelicate and awful tests. But that caused us to look beyond Kim and figure out who else was feeling marginalized and who else around us was suffering silently with a disease that was not discriminatory. So I got involved with what was called the Treasure Coast Community AIDS Network. And I was on the beginning uh, team there. And I began with another guy but who, who just recently passed away, Dave Parzial. We used to call him Pantry Dave. We began a food pantry. And uh, we did that in, in conjunction with the church that I was working at in Fort Pierce. So that way, people who had HIV and who obviously were going to lose, or lost their jobs because they were ill, you know, oftentimes 
didn't have a lot of money at their disposal could at least have have food. That food pantry is still in existence right to this day. It's not through Treasure Coast Camp, but it still is there, and it's over, well, about 30 years now. But the point is that we began then at the parish delivering meals to people that were not able to go out, either get groceries or to even prepare their own meals because they were so sick with HIV. Mm -hmm. And that was unique. And we took a lot of heat for doing that. We would bury people that died of AIDS. And oftentimes, you know, that was really an incredibly sad time for me because as a church musician, sometimes me and Chris and the funeral director at somebody's funeral because the families would shun these people. I recall one gentleman that I um, that I brought dinner to, and uh, you know he was he was married to a woman, and he had kids, and he was really a gay man. But he was sort of forced into hiding that and doing what he needed to do to just survive in life, and that was get married and have kids. But apparently, you know, he also succumbed to his, you know sexual needs, and he ended up um, becoming infected with uh, with HIV, and he ended up alone. His wife shunned him, and his kids shunned him, and, and I would eat with him, and I would bring him his food, and when he passed away, we buried him, and, and nobody came except uh, Chris and me and The Undertaker. And it really was a sad, sad time to see, and I think what it taught me personally was, you know, where in the hell is the church? Mm-hmm. Where are the people of God? It can't just be us. And, you know, we were taking heat from all kinds of people. Uh, you know, other pastors that were, that were looking at us like we were lunatics for doing this and doing something outside of, outside of the bonds of Catholicism or outside of the rules or whatever. And we didn't give up. We kept doing it, and we kept doing it, and we would, we would have uh, major discussions in our parish about this issue of of HIV and, and AIDS and and how do we respond as a community, as a faith community? Do we judge people? Because everybody knew basically how somebody was getting this disease. And so, you know, it's real easy to look down your nose and, and act like super Catholic and just condemn somebody else. But you know there, but for the grace of God went I and and a lot of other people uh that might have, you know, befallen the same fate. And so who were we to really, you know, be judging other people? And Chris was a very staunch voice in that conversation. I remember when Kim died, for example, and CNN uh, and everybody else descended upon the parish because we had the we had her viewing in the church and celebrated her funeral there and, and whatnot. And and people were, you know, just shocked that that we were claiming that, you know, this young girl was you know nearly a saint. Now we never said that, but they were they were they were saying this kind of rhetoric that we sort of made her into a saint. Well, you know what? Everybody is called to holiness. Everybody bears the mark of God, and so yeah, I, I think that she showed a certain sanctity. But so did every other person that we cared for, and I think that was the unique hallmark of the parish and what we were doing at that time was that we saw in everyone the unique holiness that was a reflection of God. And I can recall, you know, one time, this was, and, and there were scary times too. I, I have a Scottish terrier now, and her name is Margot. Uh, <laughs> about two years ago, I had, I had my other, my second Scottish terrier pass away, and she was Sophie. And 
when I got my first Scottish Terrier, I was at St. Anastasia in Fort Pierce, and uh, her name was Maggie, and Maggie was a puppy. And she was a, these Scotties are very feisty when they're puppies, let me tell you. <laughs> and they've got teeth like alligators. And now, mind you, this was Florida, so I'm wearing sandals. And Maggie decided that she wanted to play, and she grabbed my foot. And of course, she ripped my skin on my on the top of my foot, and I had a big, fat, Scotty-sized wound on there for a while. And I was bringing food to one of the uh, people that were very, very sick with AIDS, and I was sitting next to their bed and uh, sort of feeding this man. And he got sick, and he had to vomit. And don't you know, he moved his head over the bed and vomited right onto my foot, onto an open wound. Hmm. Uh, Let me tell you, that was frightening. So... You know, I, I didn't know what to do, to be honest with you. So I, I, I got an HIV test, and I knew I had to go back in six months and so forth, but it was it was a particularly frightening time. And during that time, I came to terms with being able to talk about what I was doing and somehow or another uh, show and articulate a bit of who I was to others. I, I was growing in confidence about revealing myself to others by virtue of what Father Chris was doing about revealing himself and his heart and his capacity for his, I want to say his woundedness, because that's what it was, suffering from polio and having that that limp and all. And so my own woundedness was rooted in my in my being a gay man, but being a gay man in the closet and being fearful of saying that to anyone. But I was sort of forced into having this conversation with my mom because I thought, well, I better say something about <laughs> about just in case I come back HIV positive. I better I better like lay some groundwork here. So I remember calling her up one day and and I said, well, you know, I had a little bit of a problem. Maggie uh, bit me and she ripped my skin and I was delivering dinner. And she said, well, why are you delivering dinner to these people? And, you know, you had to be careful and you're going to, you know, because nobody understood it. My mother's a wonderful woman, but no, no, nobody understood. I mean, remember people didn't know if you were going to catch this through right. the right. air or saliva or right, touching right. things or, or whatever. So this was, this was all new. And that sort of spurred the conversation on that. Well, the reason I'm doing this is because I understand that because I'm gay too. Um, wow. Uh, so it was a freeing moment. That was a freeing moment. I was almost 30 years old when I said that to my mother, but it was a, a freeing time. And the next person that I said it to was Father Chris. And Father Chris didn't bat an eyelash. And he said, he called me Stashu. That's what they that's what they called me then. Uh, that's Polish for Stan. And he'd say, Stashu, that's okay. I don't, I don't care about all that. That doesn't matter. You're a good human being. So come on, let's do it. Let's Let's keep moving forward. Go rebuild my church. We can't sit on our laurels. Let's keep going. Good man, good solid man, and it was interesting how you know how how the universe sort of all comes together. So at the same time, you know, I was like a, ca- a walking casualty, I think, because at the same time I had uh, this is sort of indelicate, but I, I think it's a necessary part of the story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I I was seeing a urologist because I was passing what everybody thought was kidney stones. I lived in Florida. I probably was not drinking enough water. I was probably drinking uh, too much Coke and things that I shouldn't be drinking. I had been going to the doctor because I thought that uh, that something was wrong. And uh, they said, well, you're passing stones. And drink more water, drink cranberry juice, and stop you know, being outside so much, and don't get dehydrated, and everything will be fine. Well, to make a long story very, very short, everything wasn't fine. One day I was visiting a friend of mine in, in West Palm Beach, and we were visiting. 
and uh, had an over, over, overwhelming, I don't think, I've never had one since then, overwhelming urge to go to the bathroom. And uh, I, I, I did at, at my friend Mitchell's house, and uh, I had blood and clots and everything else coming out of me when I tried to urinate. And I knew something was dreadfully, dreadfully wrong. I didn't know what to do, but I knew I had to drive home immediately. And so I drove home 80 miles away. And the first person I called was Kim Bergalis. Because Kim, I knew at least had access to some decent medical personnel. And Kim called in some favors, I guess, to some doctors. And uh, turned out that it was cancer. I, I was diagnosed with bladder cancer. Hmm. And when they had looked at the films of my urologist, they had found out that it was diagnosed three years earlier, but nobody ever made a phone call to me. Wow. Yeah, go wow. figure. So they said, we need to get you into, into surgery immediately. And it, it was just a, a very trying time. But not to dwell on, uh, everything's fine, and it was fine. What they, what they found out was when they went in there was that uh, it was no worse three years later than it had been on those initial films, thank God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's sort of a, a miraculous thing, and so there was no loss of of anything at that point. It was a, it was a real gift. But the interesting thing is how all of it converged together. How Kim and her wonderful medical personnel that could help me and get me immediate help, as opposed to the doctors that I had been seeing that weren't really doing their job. And I think it also taught me something too about empathy and about realizing how others might feel when they're particularly vulnerable. Because, man, did I ever feel vulnerable. Let me tell mm-hmm. you, when you get a cancer diagnosis, that is a, um, it's a game changer. Yeah. So interestingly enough, especially in this day and age, soon after that, Kim was still alive, we decided to host Dr. Fauci at mm. our parish to talk to us about HIV and AIDS. Again, going back to that conversation I had with my own mom, uh, people were not understanding the disease. And there were a lot of rumors and a lot of uh, false information that was going around about it. And so, again, that was another way that we were really front runners in the conversation in South Florida for the Catholic Church to even have Dr. Fauci come and to speak to us frankly, and to delve into some science. So now we had a marriage of outreach and science and faith and a Catholic community struggling with its identity, but knowing that it had a Franciscan charism to go to rebuild the church. And where was the church in need of being rebuilt? In those people that were on the margins, that were sick and dying alone, that we were taking care of. And so I learned, you know, from Father Chris and from being there for those 15 years, how to take chances, Mm. how to look at a community and say, where are the needs? And to listen to where the needs are, and then to not be afraid of of moving forward. And I think I tried to translate that into myself too. How can I not be afraid of who I am? And how can I help rebuild who I am? I am by virtue of faith and the community and understanding them, meaning the community, and they understanding me. How can, how can this happen? Yeah. And I didn't have an answer. I didn't have an answer, but I knew that I could be more myself, which was really freeing. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, um, I had a big, uh, a big choir there. I think we had about 30 people or so, and a children's choir too. Well, when we were uh, 
going through um, the challenges with Kim and ministering to the uh, the Haitian community and the gay community with HIV AIDS. Our choir, which was right next to the sanctuary, visible, like right next to the sanctuary, would wear red ribbons during Mass. And so with the children's choir. Now, I mean, that sounds like nothing now. But back then, that was huge. It was a like, big deal, for sure. It was, a, it was a big deal. When we did the first World AIDS Day commemoration at our parish at St. Anastasia in Fort Pierce, huge. We had beautiful bronze statues that were gorgeous. Father Chris was a, a Renaissance artist in his last life because he would have these beautiful things uh, outside and design these beautiful gardens and beautiful bronzes and so forth. But back then, we would cover all, all the art up with black on World AIDS Day. It was a, a visual reminder that because so many people in the arts were dying and mm. sick. And so this parish, you know, would, would follow through with these kind of visuals and, and would be in solidarity with those who were on the margins. That was a tremendous learning experience for me. You know, JR, it's interesting being somebody who's able to observe like your life story to see like leading up to until this, there was definitely, I feel like that the universe, God, just the strategic people that you got to have these experiences with to come together and create uh, and show up and, and take action to help other people and to be the church in other people's lives. You, you have, even before you had this self-actualization or this realization that now that you, you were going to continue to seek out with, I feel like that there was so much you were already doing, but now with this authenticity that you were able to have. And I know for myself, like when I came out to the first person who had met a good friend of mine and he just, you know, I had this similar experience where he just like was nodded and was like, yeah, you know what? Like the monster underneath the bed got smaller. And then I shared that with somebody else. And then it was just like, I was able to have the self-actualization to be, not that I had to come out to everybody, but that I knew like, I'm okay. Knowing now, like all of what you've been able to accomplish where people say that, oh, this will never change or where you've been able to build bridges. You know, we could, we could talk about so many of the different accolades and just beautiful things you've accomplished, but I'm really excited about, and just today currently with the stuff that you're doing, you've been able to do in Lexington. So what brought you to Lexington? Sure. Well, let, you know, when I, when I left Fort Pierce, it was because my pastor, uh, Chris, decided to retire. And I thought, well, Attila the Hun may come in next. And uh, I so I may as well leave while the going's good. And so I looked for another job, and there was a job open in the Diocese of Orlando, which was at a beautiful Oceanside Parish, which was not hard to take. And I left, and I took that job there. And you know, when you going back to your freeing thing, it's making it's making me make this point, I guess. When I interviewed for that job in Orlando at, at this parish, and the pastor um, called me up and said, "Well, let's go to lunch and let's talk about it." We were pulling into the driveway at the parish. And I said to him, I've got something I've got to tell you. And he said, okay. He pulled over the car. And I said, well, you know, I don't want to take this job and then end up getting fired or end up losing it and moving and everything else. I said, I want you to know that I'm gay. And he said, okay, that's just not an issue. I said, Whoa, this went very well. Wow. Okay, cool. And I said, but, but here's the deal. You know, I knew at that point that there would be people in the church that would make a big, big deal out of it. And there still are to this day yeah. um, that just want to use that as a way to hang somebody, so to speak. And I said, what are you going to say to those people? And he said, you know, I'm going to tell them it's, it's, it's none of their business. And, uh, you know, you shouldn't be judging people and, and, you know, a bunch of other things. And so anyway, I went, I went to another parish there and we, we worked rather well for another 13 years and I'll spare you all of that. But that was not without its difficulties because there was a band of people there 
that just wanted me out uh, because they knew that I was gay. Mm. That that was a that was a real problem because they went to the first bishop who was there when I when I went there and tried to make a big deal, and I went and spoke to this bishop who ended up being I don't want to say a friend but friendly toward me and and nice to me and understanding and all and he wouldn't buy into it. Hmm. Uh, you know, another time my pastor said he was called into the chancery and, and told that he was to fire me because of because I was gay and I was being a divisive figure. And uh, he wouldn't do it, of course. Um, but anyway, that, just to say that, that uh, you know, th- there are still big challenges within faith communities of acceptance, which is really strange in this day and age. But, you know, people are all on a learning curve, and, and that's okay. I've, I've come to the conclusion that that's okay. And, and, uh-huh. and, and you know, God, God works still through these situations. Sometimes they're tough and challenging, but, but there's still good that comes out in the end, you sh- I think. Yeah. At least I believe that. You should believe that. So I know so much of the work you've done with people with, with that were dying of AIDS and and with people that you work with today involves dignity. And where in my life experiences is like where I think where the ch- I don't you know I can't speak for the church as a whole, but for us when it comes down to it's like okay, so where do we draw the line on what is like can I serve in the church? Can I can I marry someone? Can I am, am I you know if if God is in all of us, right? Like being able to look down upon that person and it's like so wait so is it if i'm I'm celibate is that is that okay like and what i've realized is this this this, you know this gentle like you know hand holding and and relationships where people are having real life experiences whether it's with myself and anthony as as two married men where i see like the quandary it puts them in where they have this experience with us and it's just like then they don't know what to do with it Right. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes perfect sense. I think that's how people approach me and have approached me, just as as one person, let alone you know y'all as as, as married men. You, when you said the, the dignity of the human person, you know, when I was in that parish in the Orlando diocese, we were worried about people in Appalachia because their dignity was severely compromised. They didn't have the basics. And they weren't getting the basics. And we, would, I would organize these huge uh, outreaches and so forth with the pastor and with the parish. And, and they were huge. And, and they went on for years, and they're still going on, thanks be to God. But the point was that the dignity of the human person was at stake. Where are we looking? Where are we finding the dignity of the human person in peril? That's where we should be mm-hmm. reaching out. So mm-hmm. when that pastor left in the Orlando Diocese, I decided I was leaving too, but we had, had th- I think, four hurricanes in a row just a couple of years prior, and we lived near the ocean, and there was no way in the world that you could get insurance. And I thought, well, we got to get out of here because you have to insure what you have, otherwise you'll have nothing. If something mm-hmm. else comes, and we only could have an insurer of last resort. It was just a mess. So we sold it. Thought, well, where, where should I go? And, and it made sense to come here to Lexington because since 1988, I had had a relationship with this diocese of pairing affluent South Florida parishes when I was in Fort Pierce with poor, economically poor, struggling communities, faith communities in Appalachia. And that the parishes would send X number of dollars per week. 
and they would enter into what was called a covenant relationship. And I knew a lot about about this diocese and about this area. And it's a beautiful area besides. I don't know if you've ever been to Lexington, but here I am, Chamber of Commerce for Lexington. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. Um, <laughs> a lot of art, uh, a lot of culture, a lot of good food. Beautiful. It looks like you're in a, in a, in a painting most of the time because it's beautiful horse country and bluegrass. And just gorgeous. But the point was that I guess uh, it was sort of a no-brainer to come here. It had the best of like, say, Austin and and uh, Asheville and just some beautiful places that I loved and thought this is a good place to come. And plus we knew, uh, I knew a lot about uh, about this particular diocese. So when I got here, uh, I took a job, really small little job as a music director at a parish in Harrodsburg. It was a wonderful community. It was a very healing community. It was a lovely time. I stayed there almost a whole year. And then a job opened up here in Lexington at a parish that for me, when I looked at this parish, it was screaming my name, saying, come, 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 come. Mm-hmm. It was a very social justice-oriented parish in downtown Lexington, situated in the historic district next to the Opera House, across from Rupp Arena, if you know anything about like basketball mm-hmm. stuff. That's where all the games and all the shows and everything come. It was in, in a wonderful place. And at that time, they did not have a pastor. What they had was a parish life director, who was Sister Clara, a woman leading the place, and a sacramental minister, uh, Chuck Niehaus, God rest his soul, he just passed away a couple of days ago. And they really were the embodiment of everything that I had lived until that point. And I thought, oh my gosh, I cannot believe that they're looking for somebody. And they just wanted a music director. And I thought, okay, that's getting your foot in the door. Mm-hmm. Take the job. At least you you have the same vision as everyone else. And of course, I you know did sort of the same thing that I did uh, when, when I took other jobs. I just immersed myself in, in the entire thing. And I worked for several years, observing and learning and just doing the best that I could. Um, but I didn't think I made a big impact until Pulse occurred, the Pulse Massacre. And I was working as a church musician there, again, their director of, of music and their director of stewardship. And that occurred on an early Sunday morning, like in the early hours of Sunday morning. And I remember waking up Sunday morning and and before I went to my first mass, I looked on, on the web and at the news, and I saw that this had happened. I was just just mortified. I couldn't believe it, and I also couldn't believe that it was you know so close to a place that I worked right for for the for thirteen years prior to coming here. And I guess I was just uh, I was stunned. Number one, but number two, I went in that morning and did my masses, and I was disgusted. I was absolutely disgusted with the church. Not a word was mentioned about this massacre. And, you know, the thing that that bothered me most about it was that when any other tragedy occurred, we were the first ones to pray for them. And I I wondered why not this time. Was it because there was gay people involved? Is that why we were so silent? And I thought, what in the world? And I, I grew a backbone that day. And I was... Uh, doing their Facebook page at that time. And when I got back home, I put a thing on there about praying for our, our siblings who were killed and massacred at Pulse. And I put, and I think I put the article or the image of Pulse or something on this thing. And I thought, well, let the chips fall where they may. This will either kill me or cure us all. And uh, don't you know, overwhelmingly on the Facebook page were people 
saying how wonderful, how wonderful the church is saying something, and just support. And I thought, whoa, this is not what I thought was going to happen. I thought this was going to be my death knell, to be honest with you. That, mm. that you know, my posting that was the bell ringing for my imminent death. But I thought I had to do it. Well, that sort of opened up a conversation then. And I went into parish leadership with Sister Clara, and at that time, uh, another priest that I was working with. And uh, I had a conversation about how are we going to respond to this? How are we going to respond to the LGBT community who are obviously grieving, who are obviously maybe afraid at this point? I mean, who knew if there were going to be more attacks like that, if it was an isolated incident? I mean, there were just so many questions. And what was the church going to do? I knew that there was a big uh, LGBTQ community here in Lexington. I didn't know anybody in it, but I knew there was one because we had a pride festival. Mm. And there were tens and tens and tens of thousands of people that would, that would descend upon downtown Lexington for this pride festival. So I had the conversation with church leadership and it was a hard sell sort of not for sister Clara, but for the priest, it was a hard sell. And I wanted to do something. I didn't, I didn't know what, but I proposed that on the one month anniversary of the pulse massacre, we do a concert in the church and invite specifically the LGBTQ plus community. It was a hard, hard sell. Boy, that was tough. And I shouldn't say that all the way around, but the priest that I was working with at that time didn't understand the difference between being political and being pastoral in this regard. So, you know, everybody's on a learning curve. So I don't, I'm not, not speaking ill of him. Everybody's on a learning curve. Everyone is. We all are. And his learning curve was trying to figure out you know, what he could in conscience, and we all have to work on our, you know, by virtue of our own consciences, what he could do and what he couldn't do. So, at any rate, made the cell, made up about, I don't know, three or four thousand, two or three thousand flyers, whatever it was. And we went to the Pride Festival because, mind you, the Pulse Massacre and the 30 day mark afterwards, when we wanted to have the concert right in the middle of it, was the Pride Festival. And we handed out all these flyers. It said, specific welcome to the LGBTQ community, to St. Paul Catholic Church downtown, a concert. We got some really excellent talent to put on this concert. We were met with, uh, with, with people being stunned that we were walking around the Pride Festival, handing this thing out, asking the LGBTQ community to come to St. Paul Church for, for any reason just to come to a Catholic church. I say, are you real Catholics? Is this for real? You know, like, <laughs> is this a joke? Or, right. you know, all kinds of, so, um, I mean, I was learning a whole heck of a lot about how we were perceived, and this was getting uglier by the moment because we were perceived as, as the place where we didn't want gay people. We didn't want yeah. lesbians. We didn't want trans people. We didn't want bi people. We didn't, we, I don't know what we wanted. Right. But I, that was a shock to me because, you know, we always said that we were the inclusive parish. Well, Fancy us thinking of that because yeah. unless other people know that you're the inclusive parish where everybody is welcome, you're not the inclusive parish. It's one thing that I learned from that whole thing that right. that, that just because you know it, don't assume everybody else knows it. And what are you doing to show it? Right. So, yeah. so Jr. Just for a second though, I just want to just trying to point this out. At least what I'm thinking, I'm hearing is is that not only were you inviting these people and telling them that they're welcome, you were inviting them to come to something to mourn and and honor the lives of the people that were lost and dignify these people at the same time in this church. Correct. What we wanted to do, what, what my vision was, was to honor both the dead, to mourn the dead, 
and to honor the lives of those who someone thought were worthless. What I was learning was that the perception of those that we wanted to honor, meaning the LGBTQ plus community as well, because we want to honor their lives that were so dishonored at mm -hmm. Pulse. And what we were learning, what I was learning, was that we were part of dishonoring those lives. Mm. We were part of it too. So it's interesting. I've I've been hearing this, you know, as you've been telling your story, how important communication is, how important when something happens for leadership in any organization, church, corporation, a local grocery store, but for there to be a way to take a stance and say, you know, this is who we are, this is what we do for the church to be able to, you know, do that for its parishioners and to the community to make sure that people know that you are there for them and that you you are a safe space for them to come to. It's I think about all those times hearing, you know, you just kind of walk us through, you know, a bit of your history, thinking back to when you were in the seminary, if you were just able to have that open communication with some of the other people at the seminary, what a difference that would make. And then what a difference it made when the church provided outreach to those who, you know, had HIV and AIDS, what a major difference that makes. And being able to see that you are part of that, you know, vehicle at the church in terms of having this uh, concert, you know, at St. Paul's, it just, it's intrinsic to know and to remind ourselves, you have to speak up and you have to speak out when you know that there's something right that you have to be able to do. Absolutely. And so one of the, one of the things that I knew about this concert was I didn't want a lot of talking. Because talking was going to get us in bigger trouble, I thought. Yeah, for sure. We, we wanted to call people in, let them know they were welcome here in this home, which we call the Catholic Church building, because they were not feeling particularly welcome there. And I asked our bishop, Bishop John Stowe, if he would be the only one to really say something outside of a couple of prayers that we offered, a prayer in the Jewish tradition and a prayer in the Christian tradition and, and the music. And he he agreed to it. And this is where, you know, intentional, intentional communication, intentional outreach, intentional, intentionally being church, intentionally being family mm. uh, comes into play. He stood at that pulpit and he said these words, which changed my life. He stood there in a full church. We had about 700 people in that church, 750, whatever. And I never thought I would live to hear these words in a Catholic church come from a bishop speaking to a predominantly gay congregation there at that moment. And if not gay, then it was their families, friends, and allies. And he said, homophobia is a sin. I've used those words over and over in almost all the talks that I give everywhere because those are powerful words. I don't think anybody had ever said that before in the church, let alone say it out loud. That changed lives. That changed hearts in that instant. After that concert, uh, we had a time of fellowship afterwards with some food and drink and so forth. And it was supposed to last a couple hours. It lasted many hours. And we heard all these stories about how many people, you know, were so alienated by the church and horror stories about what priests told people, you know, you don't belong here. If you're gay, get out. One guy, you know, after he made his confirmation 30 years earlier and decided to tell his priest that he was thought he was gay, the priest said, well, then you better find something else to do on a Sunday morning because you're not welcome here. Mm -hmm. Go figure. All of these people, we learned that some people came to the concert 
and couldn't stay in the church. They had to leave because they were so repulsed by just being in the Catholic Church after the treatment that they had received and from different members of the Catholic Church or from priests. Some people couldn't get out of their cars in the parking lot. They drove into our parking lot and thought they couldn't even walk on the campus because they were just either fearful or filled with anxiety or whatever. We learned so, so very much about the pain that was out there. So many people mm-hmm. uh, that, that were just so hurt and, and other people that were just incredulous that, that the church was doing this. Yeah. That the church was was doing something. We had this big banner there, an eight by ten banner that I had everybody sign, and that I subsequently took to the Pulse Memorial in Orlando a couple of weeks later. And hundreds, and I think thousands of signatures were on, including our bishop's signature on it. That so moved the LGBT community. Not too long after that, I uh, met with our bishop, and I said. I went met with another friend of mine, Father John Curtis, and and we had proposed the idea that maybe we should be thinking about intentional outreach in the diocese here for LGBTQ persons, as in mm-hmm. LGBTQ ministry. Mm-hmm. And the bishop said, "Well, do you guys have a plan?" Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we know there's we know there's a need, and we do believe in the Holy Spirit, so maybe God's got a plan, and we're happy to cooperate if we we don't get in the way. But at any rate, we began, we got permission to begin an LGBT ministry at St. Paul Parish. And so I got word out everywhere that we were going to have this big, uh, big LGBT ministry meeting. I, you know, y'all come, doors open, and, you know, two people showed up. <laughs> two people showed up. I thought, oh, God, this is not the beginning that I was looking forward to. But it, but it was transformative for one young man that came there. One young man had been away from the church for a long time. and he came back that night, and he is now immersed in the parish here at St. Paul. And as a matter of fact, if you go to the Diocese of Lexington's website, Crossroads is our diocesan magazine. This month, he was featured on the cover, and St. Paul's was featured on the cover of that magazine, because Nick is now the chairman of our parish council here at St. Paul. So a long way from that first ministry meeting. Of which, which I just want to pause for a second, because you know you mentioned that banner that you, you took down the, to, to Pulse for the memorial that was signed. I, I've been on, on the diocese website, and literally, currently, as, as we're uh, recording this podcast, it's the first thing that pops up on the banner for the diocese, and I'm just like, like I just have to smile and be like, wow, just because I, I honestly, 20 years ago, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought that was possible, to be honest. Yeah, that that was, uh, we did that the second year uh, for, for Pride. The first year was the Pulse, you know, uh, handouts, and the second year, I designed that banner and had it out in front of our church. Well. I was either a saint or I was just the biggest evildoer on earth, depending on who you talk to and who you look mm-hmm. at the media, because of that banner. But what it did do, it put the word out there that we were not afraid to take a stance and to say, yes, St. Paul Church, historic St. Paul Catholic Church, is going to be a safe place where LGBTQ persons, their families, their friends are honored are respected, are treated with respect, compassion, sensitivity, where they are supported, where their dignity is defended. And it brought all kinds of people back to the church. Yeah. yeah. And it, and so we put it up every year now. Uh, and we also, in the ministry that I do, I, I give them other, to other places too where they can use them, uh, in, in Louisville and in, 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 in other, other places. So that way other people can see an intentional welcome. So- yeah. Should I go on? 
<laughs> no, yeah, it's just and it's just to, to me, it's like is it one moment of truth led to another moment of truth that has has the, the ripple effect of what your calling has produced in, in other people's lives. And obviously, you know, you've had wonderful people that you have uh, come together with to, to accomplish the things that you've done as well, too. But then being able to go on that website today and see on the banner of the website now with that article where Nick is on the cover of that magazine, honoring the dignity and celebrating and, and what we can accomplish together. To me, it just feels like that so much healing has been done. The amends that have taken place with your church and and you know, sometimes it's sometimes we would want to avoid conversations that could be uncomfortable. But when we're quiet and we don't speak the truth, you know, that's why I love the St. Francis prayer myself. It's like because sometimes I, I question that because I, I like to be a peacemaker. I like to show love. I like to show you know how what love looks like. But it also in that prayer it talks about you know to speak truth when there's error. Right. And and that's that's what I've seen in what you've done and what your church has done. And, and I just commend you so much for that. Well, thank you. And, and of course, it does take a village. I didn't do this alone. You know, soon after we got permission for the LGBT ministry to, to occur at St. Paul, which at that point was a personal outreach of the Bishop of Lexington, and it was at the parish that I was working at. But one of the things that I did was I put together a group called Together on the Bridge, Together on the Bridge, of LGBTQ family friends and allies, straight allies and straight family and straight friends, because I knew that it was important within the church and for the conversation to go forward to have our straight people and our straight parishioners part of that conversation. Because, you know, really, we, I had to be honest in looking at this. If, if I was promoting this and as an out gay man, people would say, well, you got an agenda. And that's usually the default, you know, accusation. But I knew that they couldn't say the same thing for parents and for the straight allies and family and friends that, that were coming together, because their only agenda was that their daughters, sons, brothers, sisters, family members, and friends were loved and respected, and that they could find themselves to be good Catholic Christians by virtue of their inclusive love. And so that was tremendously helpful. So as this ministry progressed, we outgrew the living room at the parish house, and we had to go to a place called the Plantery, which is a big sort of warehouse kind of thing where nonprofits can meet, and we would meet there uh, monthly. And we were attracting people. Now, this is really counterintuitive, to be honest with you, and no one would expect it. But right now, as a matter of fact, and for the last year, I'd say, we have people coming to us that are not Catholic that see what we are doing at the Catholic Church here at St. Paul, and they are wanting to discern whether or not they should join the Catholic Church. Now, how many gay people or lesbian people or trans people or bi people do you know that want to join the Catholic Church? So it goes to show that when we do intentional outreach, when we love like we are supposed to love by virtue of the gospel that we preach, it's attractive. Mm, you remember, yeah. I mean, Jesus said that, didn't he? He said, he said you know, they're, they're going to know you are my followers by the love you have for one another. Now, Jesus was, a, was brilliant because he knew that that love we had for one another would be darn attractive. Yeah. And so the attraction is, is still valid all these years after Jesus. Right. And not too long ago, it was July of this past year, I believe, the LGBT ministry at the parish became part of the diocesan structure of the Diocese of Lexington through the Peace and Justice Office, and it is now the Diocese of Lexington LGBT ministry. Wow. So now the conversation goes beyond St. Paul's, which it had anyway. St. Paul's is now in the diocesan plan 
and the diocesan strategic plan, it is now a model for other parishes for LGBT inclusion and LGBT ministry. I mean, that's how far we've come from nothing at Pulse, not even a dang prayer. Yeah. So I, th I think I think that, that it just goes to show that, at least to me, it goes to show that there is something else, and it's a capital S, something, someone, capital S, else, that is really orchestrating this. All we have to do is be people that are willing to take the risk if we feel that the spirit is moving, that we feel that, and if you're not a person of faith, then if you feel that energy of goodness, or you feel that that tug of decency or, or love or whatever you want to call it, if we take the chance and we risk to act upon it, that then something divine, something providence. cosmic, yeah. providence, providence moves in and turns it into the miraculous. And that's what we've seen here. And Soon after, you know, in the midst of all of this, I got a call to be the first executive director of Fortunate Families, which is a national ministry. And now I travel, well, not during the pandemic, I travel via Zoom. So I'm sitting in the same spot 24 7 for the last nine months. Uh, but uh, normally I would travel about one week out of, the, uh, out of the month, and I would travel to parishes, dioceses, high schools, colleges, universities, religious communities, meaning religious orders and so forth, and help them to discern through days of discernment and visioning, through retreats, through parish talks, talking to parishes, talking to communities, uh, to discern whether or not they're called to begin intentional LGBT ministry, how they can become their unique version of a welcoming and a supportive parish that celebrates are LGBTQ persons. And people will ask, you know, they ask all over the place, well, you know, why do we have to do that? You know, I had a conversation last night with my aunt. And she said, well, JR, one thing I don't understand is, you know, why do we have to do something special for the LGBT community? Why can't they just be welcome like everybody else? I mean, we don't mention everything about Polish people are welcome. Oh, mm -hmm. we don't, as a matter of fact. And I said, no, but you know, we're, the Polish people were never told you don't belong in the church. Yeah, and if there was Polish, and here's the thing, and if there was Polish people that were saying that they felt un un unwelcome, then we need to talk about that. Absolutely, and I think, and I think that's the biggest question that that I get everywhere is, you know, well, why do we need to do this? You're shoving this down our throat. I'm not shoving anything down anybody's throat. Mm -hmm. I'm saying that we have a marginalized community. That I mean, look at the suicide rate yeah. of our of our youth. Yeah. Um. I the, just this week, this week alone. I got two emails from young people, 18 and younger, that have just about had it, and that that are with the end of their rope, that reached out because they needed somebody to accompany them because one gal was afraid she was going to be sent to conversion therapy because of her Catholic parents. Right. Yeah, and she's at home uh, at, at this point, and she's, you know, she's 17 years old or 18 years old, but she's terrified of that. She needed somebody to accompany her, and... I found her, as a matter of fact, the woman I talked about earlier, Sister Clara, is going to accompany her and help her through this whole thing. And, you know, please God, keep her out of, of torture therapy. And, and another young man reached out too this week. It was come from Catholic parents. This, this kid is, is frightened as all get up because he suspects that his parents know he's gay. And if his parents know he's gay because, because they're learning at home now and all of this, they're not really going in all the time to school. And so apparently they may have seen something, I don't know, a communication or whatever. And he's terrified that he's going to be tossed out on his backside and there's going to be a real Donnybrook because the 
parents are going to find out he's gay. And he said, you know, maybe, maybe I should just kill myself and end it. Mm. This is what you hear. And is faith driving us to this? Is faith driving our young people? And if it is, how do we correct it? And so that's why we need to, that's why our youth especially need to hear in our churches that we pray for LGBTQ persons. We pray for people of every sexual orientation. We welcome them specifically. You know, one thing that that I pass out everywhere are these little buttons that have little rainbow hearts on the table. We're Catholic. Those things are like like magnets for people. Yeah. You wear one of those into a Catholic church somewhere, into a Catholic high school, a Catholic university, whatever. First of all, they're a novelty, and people go, "Oh, wow, what's that? You're really Catholic, real Catholic? I mean, not, like not French Catholic, real Catholic?" Yeah. And then they start telling you their story, and I always tell people, if you ever want to really encounter Jesus as Jesus comes to us in the year 2021 or 2020, I would say last year, wear one of those buttons because you're going to see the suffering Jesus come up to you yeah. and tell you all about the suffering that Jesus is enduring in the flesh of someone that is going to pour out their story because they see a little heart pin that says Catholic and they've been keeping it in for ages. And I can mm-hmm. give you person after person after person in the dozens that have had that same experience. So that teaches me yeah. Hopefully that should teach other people, and I tried right. to teach my aunt last night, that that's why we need to reach out specifically right. to a community that's been told, you don't belong here, and yeah. you're less than. Right. right. And that's also, JR, that's also not just the LGBTQI plus community. That's also other marginalized communities. Is that right? If you look at our, if you go back to that St. Paul website that, that you mentioned about the banner before, Scroll through. What other banners do you see in front of our church? Right now, there's two in front of our church. One that says, Black Lives Matter, Racism is a Sin. And then there's another one out there that says in Spanish, Welcome Refugees and Immigrants. Hmm. Indeed. This is not, we can't be one-trick ponies. Because you know what? Our message rings hollow then. If we're going to talk about the dignity of life and of everyone that's, or of the marginalized, of the LGBTQ community that's marginalized, then we have to also speak to anybody else that's marginalized, because we are all in this thing together. And that goes right back to the beginning of our whole conversation about what did Francis hear from that cross at San Damiano? He heard, go Francis, rebuild my church. Well, where does the church need to be rebuilt today? And all of those people that are out there feeling marginalized, that feel they don't have a home, that feel that nobody is sticking up for them, who is their voice? Who is the voice of our black sisters and brothers, our black siblings at this point? Who is the voice for our refugees? Who is the voice for our children at the border? Mm-hmm. Who are who's the voice for our elderly that are sitting at home, especially our LGBT elderly, which is another situation that is coming to light these days. That I find out that that they just don't have the same capacity for communication in nursing homes. Mm that their straight counterparts have. Everybody's talking about their grandchildren and about this and that, and they're feeling very alone. I mean, this is a this is a real issue. So we've got it on both sides of life at the beginning, in the middle, and, you know, in the, in the latter stages. But it's not only them. It's also all of the other people on the margins as well. And so I think that if we're going to be honest about about supporting the dignity of LGBTQ persons, then we have to have the conversation about how then does the LGBTQ community respond to others that are in the same situation? Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we look like a selfish group of people. And we're also not following, really, at least for us, meaning 
us, we who are who are people of faith, we're not really following the gospel. We're just looking out for ourselves, and we should be looking out for the least because that's what Jesus told us: look for, look out for the least. Yeah. Whatever you do for them, you're doing for me. So who are those least? And the LGBT community is part of those least, yeah. sadly. We have a friend, Shannon Lynn Parker, who was on, and you know she talks about that when we lift up the humanity in others, we lift up the humanity in ourselves. That's right. It's that question that I have to ask myself. It's like, you know, what does love look like? What are the actions? I love being able to go to a church where I can go and be filled, like my cup can be filled on Sunday morning or Saturday. It really doesn't matter, whatever that looks like, but getting my cup filled up and then being going back out into the world and being able to, to, to then fill other people's cups up as well, too. And I think that's the whole idea. We call it something else. You know, in, in my industry, we call that, you know, incarnational theology, if you will. You know, Jesus was born as a human. God decided to show God's face, God's heart, God's hands. God decided to show God by virtue of flesh and blood as a vulnerable infant that was subsequently crucified, died, and rose, we believe. Well, that wasn't a one-time thing. God continually shows the divine self by revealing divinity in one another. Yeah. Yeah. Now, why it is so blessed hard to recognize that divinity in LGBTQ persons for some people of faith is beyond me. But again, I keep going back to this because I don't think that it's up to me to really you know, look at anyone and judge them, obviously. Everybody's on a learning curve. So how do we help others? How do I help others to learn that really our response to the LGBT community is how we are responding to God in the flesh among us. And then go even further than that, like we just discussed a moment ago. How I respond to others is how I am responding to God. And that's for people of faith. And if you're not a person of faith, well then I guess my question would be, then what defines us as human beings? Can we look at another and recognize the same humanity that we share. And if we can't, what's stopping us? And for me, for many years, what stopped me was the incapacity to love myself or to realize who I was or to self-actualize because I was afraid. Well, I guess that helps me to understand how other people might be afraid to have those same conversations when they don't understand it firsthand like I understand it firsthand. And so I think the idea, you know, and the Pope keeps calling us to this idea of accompaniment, to building the culture of encounter. Mm. Once we begin building that culture of encounter, we find out that there is so much more that makes us one than there is that makes us fearful. Mm -hmm. And fear is a great motivator of dreadful acts and of doing nothing. J.R., so if, if someone is hearing this, maybe specifically not from the LGBTQI community or somebody who is part of the community, what have you found has been a helpful tool to start to encounter others or to be of service? Sure. I, I think, you know, the, the very first thing that we, that I think we can do is, is to be quiet, okay. to be quiet and to listen. Whether you believe in God or you don't, listen to whatever your heart, your mind, whatever the stirrings are inside of you. You know, when I go to parishes and I talk about beginning LGBT ministry to priests and to staffs and so forth and so on, I don't come in with a plan. Hmm. I don't come in telling them what to do. I don't know their communities and I don't know other people. I don't know anything about it. But the one thing that I do know is that God or the cosmos or the energy that is divine or, or whatever you want to call it, whatever title you want to give it, will reveal 
what we should be doing and how we should be doing it. Now, there are some practical steps to take, I think. If anybody's out there listening and they, and they think, well, heck, my parish, or I've got five people here that, that might be willing to have a conversation about beginning something intentional, well, get a hold of me. Get a hold of me and we'll figure it out. There's lots of people that can help you figure it out through Fortunate Families, through LGBT Ministry Diocese of Lexington. You know, especially now, it's really particularly non-threatening because you can use Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so people can be on the screen and there's, everybody's muted. You don't even know if they're asleep or what they're doing. But, you know, I, you just got to trust that something bigger than yourself is out there that's going to help and take yeah. the step. Make the call. Take the leap. Try it. And then don't, you know, the, the one thing that I think we, we are sadly, we fall victim of, and that is being self-referential. Mm. I think the LGBT community really is called and should be going beyond itself. And it does in so many places. But I think our hurt sometimes, or our own fear of being hurt some more, causes us maybe not to reach out to others. Yeah, And I think, you know, I've learned that that if we do reach out to others, then we become a bigger team. We become a, a bigger a bigger vehicle of change. For example, I'll give you one little example. The Knights of Columbus get a bad rap a lot of times, and and you know they say, oh, they hate the gays and all this stuff. Um, they're a fraternal organization in the church, and you know who puts out our banner for us for many years? Our Knights of Columbus, our Grand Knight, and that. Most people find that so difficult to believe. But you know what it was? It was that these men got to know people that yeah. were gay people. Yeah. And they got to know them as brothers. Yeah. And yeah. they got to know them as friends and fellow yeah. parishioners and fellow journeyers. And that made all the difference. Then all of a sudden it just doesn't doesn't matter. And the things right. that we put aside, we could stop looking at each other and wondering what we're doing with our genitals, for God's sake. We just look at each other as human beings that are right. identifying who we happen to love. Yeah, yeah, and and I think that for myself is is it I've been in conversations and I'm guilty of this myself and, and can be and I have to watch out for it is it's like when someone then takes a good faith act that does something like that, you know that's an opportunity for me to forgive, right? And not to, not to go oh, yeah, but but ten years ago or two yeah. days ago, well that happened then. But what but what is what is the cosmos? What is Christ? What is the universe calling us to to complete and to build to lean more to you know to, towards what are we becoming, right? right. And, and and I want when when I see when someone a hand reaches out, I don't want. I mean, I want to be there to grab that hand and not to slap it and slap it down and say, "No, you did this two days ago, two years ago." You know, and we, and we can't do that with with others, and we and we shouldn't do that with ourselves either. I find in in my ministry that so many of our LGBTQ persons are burdened because they they can't forgive themselves for things that they've that yeah. they've done, thought or not done, or should have done. I find that myself too. I think, well, heck, I should have done this twenty years ago. I should have done this ten. I should have done this last week. And you know, I I, I think forgiveness. You're onto something there. We have to forgive and let go and look for for that moment of rebuilding again going back to that message of 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 you know of, of god of jesus to saint francis go rebuild yeah and mm-hmm. let's stop tearing down by what happened let's move forward you say okay well i'm suspicious all right be suspicious be cautious but don't be so cautious that you then become the obstacle to progress and to rebuilding wow mm-hmm. and that can be a real 
issue, I understand, as a gay person myself, and for the LGBT community, well, the church has hurt me so bad, people have hurt me so bad, the church doesn't want me, didn't want me, yeah, but now the church is coming around to the conversation, so if we yeah. want to, that's why people say that I'm going to leave the church, and I say, heck no, please stay, please stay. You know, just last week, I had a conversation, I'm doing this thing right now, priest across the United States, it's about ministering to trans persons, and for the last three months, uh, I met with them, and I had three different Zoom conversations. Well, this, for the next three months, I'm going to have three different people speak to them, two trans persons and one uh, parent who has two trans children. And one of the people that I that's going to speak, and uh, her name is Tracy, uh, I reached out to Tracy and said, Tracy, would you talk to these priests at one of these encounters? And, and Tracy said to me, JR, no, you know, I've had it with the church and, you know, and, and first and, and plus they don't want to hear what I have to say. Trust me. Well, I said to Tracy, Tracy, they precisely, they need to hear what you have to say. If you don't share your story, which could be a vehicle of change, well, then, you know, we've got no right complaining mm. and Tracy's going to speak and Tracy's going to tell her story of how hurt she was a victim of Catholic education and Catholic high school and how she was told to get out yeah. because she identified as trans. If we don't tell the truth, but, but here's the big, the big qualifier, but then after we've said our truth, forgive one another and move on. Yeah. Hard yeah. as that is, we will never, ever go about the work of rebuilding and restoring and moving forward. We'll just right. sit here at a stalemate, not liking each other. And for me, that could be mighty easy too. Yeah. I mean, this this work is not for the faint of heart, trust me. But it's the only way forward as far as I see it. Yeah. JR, I know from listening to you that you are you're really making a difference in the world in a lot of different ways and touching a lot of people's lives. I I know I said earlier in the conversation that I uh, grew up going to Catholic school, high school and college and like some of the people that you've talked about today, I had the experience of being shunned by the church and listening to the the space that you're creating, the this new world that you're creating within the church. It gives me so much hope that one day that I think I might be able to find that sacred space that I found so long ago that I think in many ways I miss the community and I miss being able to be with like-minded people in faith. And I just want to say before we close, I just, I really appreciate the work that you're doing because I feel like it's going to leave a lasting impact on not only, you know, the local level that you're working on, but on a, a global level to see that, LGBTQI people can be a part of the church and be a part of openly practice faith and be honest with who they are with their own community. So thank you for, for myself and all of those who can't say thank you. I really appreciate the work that you've done. Well, thank you. Your, your comments are very, very generous and are gratefully received. And, and the one thing that I'd like to leave, especially people that feel alienated from the Catholic church, because that's where I'm, where I'm particularly, uh, ministering within, is you are welcome. There is a place for you. You have every bit as much right to be in a church, and not only to be there, but to have a voice and a ministry and a place within that church. Please come home. Please come home. And if you need help coming home, reach out. I think you guys are going to put my information out there somewhere. Yeah. Reach out, because there is a place for you, and you're valuable. And God loves you tremendously, 
and the church should be letting you know that. Forgive us for the times and for the ugliness that you've known from us, but come home. And if you need help coming home, let us help you. We will talk to your priest, we'll talk to your pastors, we'll talk to your bishops, we'll do whatever we have to do, but you're part of the family and we love you. JR, thank you for the work that you do and thanks for spending some time with us today. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you all. Thank you. We hope that you were inspired by JR's story of faith, self-discovery, and service. To connect with the many resources he mentioned today, including Fortunate Families, please visit his full profile on our website at www.talkoutloudlive.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of Talk Out Loud. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, rate us, and share with a friend. You can also follow us on social media at Talk Out Loud Live. If you or someone you know has an inspirational story and a member of the LGBTQIA community, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to us on our website at www.talkoutloudlive.com. You can also get your official Talk Out Loud gear in our online store. Thanks again for listening, and remember to be true, be you, and to talk out loud. Oh,